0: Michael Ostrink here with uh, Dr. Chris Preble. He is a vice president of defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, Michael. Uh, Thanks fantastic for having me on your fantastic book show. of yours, hey, Keep there, World that. Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. It's a great read. Uh, what I'd you. like to do for this conversation is kind of break this conversation into four pieces. Um, one is to talk about our founding father's vision for U.S. foreign policy. Okay. Then talk about historically the, the conflict between the anti-Empire and the pro-Empire movements throughout throughout our history. Right. Uh, talk about post-World War II consensus among the left and right in terms of intervention abroad. And then probably the most important piece is the new rules you're suggesting which should actually guide us right. into, from this moment forward. Uh, and what I'd actually like to do is start with a quote from James Madison. Um, This is on page 19, if folks want to uh, (laughs) check this out in your book. I definitely encourage people to read your book. He says, of all enemies of public liberty, he wrote in in 1795, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. You do a fantastic job, Chris, of, of laying out three things among many. Uh, that our founding fathers warned us against and I'd like you to kind of touch upon each one. Sure. One was given the executive war powers right in our Constitution that the legislative branch has it so speak to that. Uh, our founding fathers want us to have a Navy but not a standing army which I'm sure most Americans would not know about. Right. And our founding fathers want us to steer clear of permanent alliances so right. if you don't mind starting with the war powers. Sure. Uh,
1: Thanks again for having me on the show. It's true that that Madison referred to the clause that vested the war powers with Congress as the most important of the entire document, uh, and that's saying something, seeing as how he was, you know, arguably the you know the principal drafter of the Constitution, or at least you know certainly one of one of the most important people in terms of writing the Constitution. Uh, and I think he recognized and he talked at length about how uh, the the new government, the government they were creating, was intended to limit uh, the country's ability to go to war, its propensity to go to war, and the branch of government that would be most prone to want to go to war was the executive. That was what history taught them. And I think he was right about that. Not that there aren't occasionally uh, wars of popular passions. Madison talked about that as well. Uh, But for the most part, he was concerned and many of his fellows as well, that a overly strong executive, one that had especially power to go to war uh, at its discretion would do so much more often and precisely because of the passage you just read, because war is the health of the state, uh, they were quite anxious to limit uh, the government's ability
0: to to wage war. Um, Related, go ahead. You know, you use the phrase war is the health of the state. Uh, right? uh, Amongst the libertarian crowd, that's a well-known phrase. I like that phrase to I be mean, more well known among everyone yeah, uh, you explain what you mean by war is the health of the state
1: well it, it, the passage that you read is is Madison you know explaining that that war is the and there's other uh, other clauses in that same paragraph you know war is the parent of armies from these flow debt and taxes, and debt and taxes are the instruments that the government uses to enslave the people it's 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 you know again you're right that among libertarians these these phrases, these, these, uh, sort of, uh, iconic texts are, are something like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, are are sort of like the 10 commandments or something. Uh, but for others, it's, it's helpful to remind them. And I, and again, I think we have to emphasize the founders, especially those who like Madison were federalists. They were creating a government that was stronger than the government that, that they were replacing under the articles of confederation. Uh, they, of course, were criticized for going too far in creating a too strong federal government. And I think, Point that I've made and others here at Cato have made is that, is that on balance they struck the, the right uh, balance between uh, a a, fr- a strong federal state and an overly strong federal state. But critical to maintaining that balance was limiting the power of the executive and limiting the uh, the new federal government's ability to wage war. So, so related to that is the is the issue of standing armies versus navies. Constitution, of course uh, famously calls for the maintaining of a Navy, uh, and the raising of an army. And this distinction is important. It's not, this wasn't uh, you know, just a rhetorical flourish. Uh, of course, navies is a practical matter. You can't really raise a Navy in the same way that you can raise an army and especially the way that armies were raised in the late 19th, uh, in the late uh, 18th century, which is you would call people to arms. They, they would uh, go to war and then they would go back to uh, tending the fields. Um, uh, we can still do that to a certain extent. We can still bring people into the military on relatively short notice as we've done after uh, uh, around the major wars that required a large land army like World War I and especially World War II. Uh, but you can't really do that with the Navy, especially sort of the advanced warships that we're talking about today. But even back then, uh, you know, the ability to build a warship wasn't entirely the same as being able to build a fishing vessel or a, or a uh, commercial ship. So they recognized this as a practical reason, but more importantly, they recognized that over the course of human history, armies had been um, the instruments for tyranny to, again, oppress the people, uh, used, of course, by the state, uh, uh, deployed on uh, allegedly sort of national security grounds, but but again, uh, as often as not, uh, used by tyrants, uh, to, to keep uh, the, the population under control. Uh, it's not technically true that the Constitution forbid an army. There, they did expect there would be a small professional one, uh, but it did require, uh, for example, that the, um, the funding for the army would only be funded for a period of every two years. So again, you'd have to go back and sort of ask the Congress to raise the necessary monies, uh, which wasn't necessarily always easy to do. Uh, And so for the, you know, I think both in the text of the document and everything that was written about the Constitution around that time, it's quite clear that the founders really did not expect there to be uh, a large standing army.
0: The uh, Um, piece is uh, (coughs) steering clear of um, permanent alliances. Right.
1: So uh, I think the most important uh, document, which I cite at some length in the book, is, of course, Washington's farewell address, in which he talks about the need to avoid. Um, uh, permanent alliances. Uh, he uh, stresses, however, the importance of trade and having good relations with as many countries as possible, but remaining uh, separate from their internal disputes. There's a sense that in the new world that they, they were uh, trying to build a new government, a new system of government, and, and that being constantly drawn into Europe's quarrels would, uh, would undermine both American security and American liberty. Um, I think that over over a number of years, uh, the, these views in Washington, D.C. have evolved, but I still think there's tremendous wisdom in George Washington's farewell address, which is why I uh, cited in the book and, and, um, and I think returned to it several times over the course of the,
0: the book. So we did pretty well, not completely well, but pretty well following uh, our founders' uh, ideals, at least until the mid to late 1800s. Things seem to go downhill a little bit. Which, <laughs> yes. War against Mexico. But let's, let's, I would like you to kind of highlight, because um, it seems like it, it set the stage for everything else, our war against Spain and the right. colonies we gathered as a result of that. And I'd like you to, as you speak about that, it's, in, it's important to note, and I think you did a really good job of um, explaining kind of the religious zeal that led, yes. us, led, led some of us to lead us to a war against Spain and to yes. retain those colonies. And it seemed to be, you know, a divine mission integrated with uh, racial superiority. If you actually read what was said about our purposes. I right. Think. Right. I, I, I went to some lengths
1: to really draw a distinction between the kind of territorial expansion that the United States undertook during the course of the 19th century. Again, you know, obviously spreading the country all the way to the Pacific Ocean and then and then acquiring uh, Alaska too along the way. Uh, but once the United States sort of turned its attention beyond the contiguous United States, then uh, it, it was harder to justify that expansion on strictly national security grounds. And again, there were elements of Thank you. Elements of manifest destiny that were uh, religious in, in tone, uh, and also uh, certainly an element of racial superiority or, or just outright racism. And I think you do see elements of that as well in terms of the treatment, in particular of the, of the Filipinos after the Spanish-American War, after the Philippines uh, uh, was was stripped away from the Spanish Empire, and then the United States took possession of those of those islands. Um, but I, again, I think that the the religious mission and the sort of the purpose of the United States shifted uh, from from being mostly about making life. Uh uh, good and and allowing Americans to live a free life uh, to something more approaching what what we now know as as Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden that the United States, if we were to be taken seriously as a, a great power, the only way that we could do that is to uh, is to become an empire ourselves. And again, I think this would be most upsetting to much much of the founding generation, who uh, again they, they weren't above uh, oppressing uh, native peoples as they spread. Uh, their own uh, you know uh, settlements uh, slowly westward in the in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century uh, but the scale of the undertaking especially in the filipino uh, putting down the filipino insurrection was much greater than uh, than what was uh, you know done on a case by case basis uh, in the 1800s um of course famously there was an anti imperialist league there was a uh, remarkable group of people who uh, attempted to uh, stop U.S. territorial expansion and especially uh, expansion to Hawaii and then to the Philippines. Um, I relied heavily on Stephen Kinzer's book, The True Book: True Flag, which is terrific. Uh, but there were other books as well. Obviously, uh, Walter McDougall has written about this. Um, uh, also, uh, it was a terrific book called 12 Against Empire by Robert Beissner, which is now unfortunately out of print, but it's a book that tells a lot about the anti-imperialist league and a lot of what we know about them uh, is in uh, Beissner's book. So uh, part of this was a, you know, a journey for me as a historian, learning about some new periods that I hadn't studied very carefully, uh, and I relied pretty heavily on these other sources. I also uh, dug into uh, one of my uh, favorite historical uh, speeches from the period, Sumner's uh, William Graham Sumner's speech, uh, the conquest of the United States by Spain, uh, which I again I quote at some length, and we also now have uh, available at the Cato at Libertarianism, the, the, organ, the site that published my book, we have the full text of uh, Sumner's speech as well as we recorded a podcast where we had an actor read a good part of Sumner's speech, and it's it's a remarkable uh, speech, and and again sadly uh, sort of timely and topical in spite of everything that's
0: happened over the ensuing uh, 120 years. You know, <laughs> it's interesting to know that the Anti Imperialist League was very transpartisan in nature. Yes. Even absolutely Let me just acknowledge some of the folks who are part of that league Mark Twain, Ambrose Pierce, uh, former presidents Cleveland and Harrison. Yes. Um, you had Carnegie, um, Andrew Carnegie, and, and uh, Samuel Gompers.
1: Uh, so it was a remarkable, uh, you're absolutely right, a remarkable transpartisan uh, movement. It was not driven by narrow partisan political uh, sort of gain. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting group of people who I think at a time when it was uh, you know, really not fashionable uh, to question whether or not the United States should undertake this uh, civilizing mission on the other side of the world, uh, they really stood up and, and spoke to I think what uh, America's founding principles were
0: and, and still should be. Uh, Let me remind our our listening audience what those principles are by actually reading briefly from their uh, uh, resolution adopted in 1898. And this is from the Anti-Imperialist League, their meeting. This is on page 50 for folks who want to go check this out. Quote, the mission of the United States is to help the world by an example of successful self-government and that to abandon the principles and the policy under which we have prospered and embrace the doctrine and practices now called imperial is to enter the path which, with other great republics, has ended in the downfall of free institutions. Our first duty is to cure the evils of our own country. Right.
1: Powerful, powerful stuff. Sounds like nation building at home. Uh, (laughs) uh, We've heard this uh, time and time again in American history.
0: Yeah. So what i like, like to, so that, you know, that's the, where we started gaining colonies. Uh, it didn't end there. We also right. had a couple of, I wouldn't call them wars. They weren't declared, obviously. Right. Uh, I, I don't even think they called them police actions. It was more like protecting certain business interests in South and Central America. <laughs> yeah, there was some of that for sure. <laughs> Between 1906 and 1934. I speak to some of the countries we uh, sent Marines down to. Well, we
1: obviously, uh, we took possession of Cuba and Puerto Rico In Cuba, we, there were restrictions that the Senate put on uh, sort of the United States simply repeating what uh, the, uh, the Spanish had been doing in Cuba, which was, you know, again, the argument the, the case for going to war in the first place, and yet notwithstanding those restrictions, uh, the United States did go in and send the Marines into Cuba. Uh, the Dominican Republic is another example, uh, Nicaragua, Mexico, uh, so there were definitely some interventions, uh, and of course the, the seizure of uh, Panama from Colombia that became obviously the Panama Canal Zone and uh, you know, the building of the Panama Canal. Uh, so there were a number of actions taken in the late 1800s and especially into the early 1900s uh, that that we we of course created the Good Neighbor Policy. Uh, that was that was under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But that was to undo uh, some of our actions. I think which which can fairly be called a bad neighbor policy, at least in the first uh, 30 or so years of the, of the 20th century.
0: You know, you talk, you explain what we mean by a war as a health of the state, um, and liberty is lost at home during wartime, and I think you give right. great examples during war too. Eugene Debs, who was critical of, the, of our entrance force in, in the First World War, spent 10 years in prison. Right. You also acknowledged uh, movie producer Robert Goldstein, who did a... a explain what he, what movie he did right. while he went to prison. So this was a case that
1: I I learned of from my colleague, Ted Galen Carpenter, my mentor and my predecessor here. Years ago, he wrote a book called The Captive Press, which explored sort of the different ways that, uh, that uh, war and, and prepar- preparing for war can be uh, harmful to liberty and especially to a free press. And one of the cases that he highlights is is of uh, uh, arresting and charging and jailing a uh, producer for making a movie about uh, the American Revolution. You know, this was during the time of World War I, and this is of course when, when our ally, Great Britain, uh, was put in an unfavorable light uh, by a movie which talked about the American Revolution. And for that reason, he was thrown in jail. As you know, Eugene Debs ran for president at least one time from a jail cell, effectively. Uh, again, for uh, the, his offense was for questioning uh, conscription, for questioning a draft. That was one of his sort of key offenses. But more generally, I think, even in places where, where individuals are not subject to uh, uh, arrest and, and um, incarceration, again, the Japanese Americans during World War II, the more, one of the more famous and horrific cases as well. But even in instances where it's stopped short of that sort of uh, overt and, and obvious violations of individual rights, there's a much more um, pervasive sense of sort of self-censorship and a, an unwillingness to call attention to uh, government abuses because you will seem uh, unpatriotic. Again, this is sort of the way it's cast. Uh, and, and in some sense, again, this is perfectly understandable. It seems, as I explained in the book, it seems rather uh, petty uh, to complain about uh, in World War II, for example, rationing or the unavailability of certain meats or fishes or things like that when a neighbor's son was killed you know, in Guadalcanal. Uh, so you know, th- those sorts of sort of social stigma and social pressure on top of the expanded power of the state which is why war is uh, is uh, so threatening
0: to liberty across a, a very broad scope so it, it seems to me that what what's unique and I want to move to at post-world War II, or the Cold War is that previous to previous to that all the wars we we mobilized industrially and government-wide and culturally um, including a lot of propaganda to get us into the wars sure um, but it was different after World War II. We didn't demobilize. right? Um, you talk about uh, both Eisenhower and, and, his, and, and his fateful speech about the military-industrial complex, yes. but also NSC-68 and, right. and the consensus among the liberals and the, and the conservatives in support of a more interventionist foreign policy. Can you speak right. to that? And, and we'll take it up to 9-11. Sure. I mean, I think, in fact, immediately after World War II,
1: we shouldn't forget, we did demobilize. There were close to, gosh, 13 million men-at-arms, as I recall, at the high point of of the war. Uh, Virtually all of them were ultimately uh, sort of, you know, returned to civilian service and went back to their lives. But we we forget that because very quickly— uh, after that, in the early nineteen, in the late 1940s, uh, as the uh, competition with the Soviet Union really heated up, and we started to uh, sense uh, the Soviet Union as being a, you know, a, a, a key challenger, not just um, uh, militarily but also ideologically, uh, you see uh, a return, uh, a, re- a new argument for a permanent uh, national security state. You, state. you have the passage of the National Security Act in 1947. Uh, which created you know, not just the Air Force, but also the CIA and other things like that. Uh, and that's a, a sort of a permanent bureaucracy for the state. Then of course, qu- quickly followed by um, uh, the Chinese victory in the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist victory in the Chinese uh, Civil War, uh, Soviet Union detonating a, s- a nuclear weapon, and then the Korean conflict in 1950. All of those things uh, sort of built uh, em- energy and momentum behind a permanent state and permanent mobilization for war. Again, the the argument was that uh, it was mostly as a deterrent, it was not intended to actually go to war, but we did wage war in Korea and then later in Vietnam. And though that instrument, that permanent force is precisely what the founders were wary of, what Eisenhower warned of in his farewell address, January 17th, 1961, um, which is also available at the Cato uh, Libertarianism website, which is is a, Important speech, it's fairly well known. Perhaps less well known is, is Eisenhower's speech, The Chance for Peace, which he gave in April of 1953. It was one of his first public speeches as president, actually. And so the point was that, that this man, who had lived his, both basically his entire adulthood in uniform, uh, harbored very grave concerns about. Uh, the imbalance that was being created in American society where too much power and authority was invested in the military and too little in uh, civilian institutions, but equally important in the private sector. Uh, and he never, uh, he never lost that, that belief uh, all the way through his eight years in office. And I think in many respects, his farewell address can be read as a lament that he had failed, even he had failed uh, to halt
0: this drive towards a permanent warfare state. And then the permanent warfare states continues up, up until right. 9-11. But actually, what I'd like to do is take it to 1997, obviously four years before 9-11. And I think it's important for Americans to be reminded of their history, especially right. war drums are now being beaten for war with Iran, which can yep. come and go, come and go, unfortunately. Uh, 1997, the uh, Project for New American Century by uh, some of our new conservative friends, William Crystal and Robert Keegan, um, were promoting right. the removal of Saddam. Uh, around the same time as the Iraq Liberation Act, which, under Clinton, actually called for regime change in Iraq. Then you have Chalabi, kind of uh, propaganda, propaganda guys in the Americans in support of regime change. So, you know, kind of speak to that whole thing, because obviously that wasn't immediately successful, but ended up being successful to regime change, not successful in the end for us, but 2003.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of those cases in in fairly recent American history, which most Americans have forgotten. They think of Iraq as an outgrowth of 9-11, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, and they see Iraq as part of the 9-11 wars and sort of somehow connected to Al-Qaeda. And as I try to explain in the book, uh, that simply isn't the case. Uh, The war uh, in Iraq was not, in fact... At all related to the the war uh, against uh, al-Qaeda, for example, in Afghanistan. And yet you had in place uh, a group of people who were determined to overthrow Saddam Hussein. They saw him as a brutal dictator, but they also saw him as a threat to the United States and to other countries in the Persian Gulf and greater Middle East region. Uh, And so they were agitating for his removal for a number of years. Uh, They got their chance after 9-11. Again, these were uh, there, there had been the passage in the, sign, the passage of the Iraq Liberation Act and signed by President Clinton in 1998, which specifically dedicated to the United States to the overthrow of Saddam's regime, but obviously ha- it hadn't occurred until after, uh, after September 11th. And that's when you see a very concerted effort, I do go into this in some detail, a very concerted effort to try to connect uh, the events of 9-11 to the regime in Iraq and that whole, uh, the whole project we can now see was uh, was a, was a sham. There were the connections, purported connections between Saddam Hussein and, and Al Qaeda, were uh, fallacious and, and phony and planted uh, by two credulous uh, planted in the stories of two credulous journalists uh, along the way. The, uh, there were a few exceptions, of course, to to this. The, famously, the Knight Ritter bureau here in D.C. But for the most part. Uh, I think the American news media did not uh, cover themselves in glory in terms of their uh, their coverage of the case for war with Iraq, uh, and I would hope, as you uh, already teed up, I would hope uh, they would learn uh, their lesson. They've learned something, and uh, would not be so gullible uh, in the rush to war with Iran. Uh, unfortunately, I, I
0: hope hope hope, hope <laughs> is not a strategy, Michael. I hope right? is not a strategy. Unfortunately, watching the news and reading the right. papers. Uh, of course, unless of course you read the foreign press, uh, they seem yeah to be that's right that's a better right. resource. Um, you know, uh, one of the things in terms of your new rules, which we'll get to in a moment, is the cost of war. And it's interesting to note that in two thousand two, Ken Pollack from the Brookings Institute thought that their Iraq War would cost less than ten billion. Right. Um, talk to us about what the true cost of the total uh, warfare state post nine eleven was. From whom? Well, even leaving aside the Iraq
1: War, which is, by reasonable estimates, in the trillions, the Brown, uh, Watson Institute at Brown has has been pretty good about documenting these costs, as has uh, the Congressional Research Service. So certainly in the trillions of dollars uh, and likely to accumulate, again, we're talking about the care of uh, the veterans who were wounded in the war and the the care for widows and and, uh, dependents of those killed. Uh, of course, we also have to be mindful of the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who were murdered in the war, as well as the millions of Iraqis who were, uh, uh, who are refugees, either you know driven from their homes within Iraq or out or fled Iraq completely. Uh, those are costs which we can't capture in dollars and cents, especially not American dollars and cents, taxpayer dollars. But it's a cost nonetheless. Um, there's always the danger, of course, that that the animosity and resentment that we that we have engendered because of this war will eventually blow back on us. Uh, I certainly hope that's not the case, but it's something we have to be mindful of. Um, so for all of these reasons, the claim that the war in Iraq would go uh, quickly, would be resolved swiftly, would be cheap. Uh, they were absurd at the time. There were of course a few people who did call them out at the time, uh, but now we can see uh, sadly, tragically, um, that the skeptics of the war uh, were correct, that the costs are enormous and still growing. Um, uh, I think that that feeds into the last point is that precisely because it's so easy for the United States to initiate conflict, uh, it needs to be, we need to be more careful uh, and more discriminating when we do. Because while we as a $21 trillion economy at last check uh, can endure uh, hundreds of billions or more uh, in military spending, as we have done since 9-11, we've endured it, We, we don't always feel it, we don't, Always have to sort of account for the trade offs uh, and the opportunity costs. Uh, but we're not the only ones who are feeling these costs. There are others who are victimized by these wars, uh, and we need to be mindful of that as well. Um, and so that's why I think we, because we're so powerful militarily, uh, we just need to be much more uh, careful and discriminating in terms of when we decide to initiate the use of force.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll get into your five uh, uh, pillars. We might call them for the sure. rules. For Guidelines, bomb. principles, principles. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, but before we do, um, something that's guided from a bipartisan perspective, at least since the beginning of the Cold War, the end of World War II, is what, what's called what theoretically is called American primacy. Right. Um, if you wouldn't mind just speaking to that, the kind of the, the, the framework that others use, who want us to be more engaged militarily in the world. Right. Why you don't think that's a good theory?
1: Right. It's true. So after the end of the Cold War, you could have made an argument for the United States substantially demobilizing its military and draw, especially drawing down its permanent overseas presence. That uh, the military got smaller, but the overseas presence actually grew. The number of American allies expanded in the nineteen nineties and. Uh, NATO has, after all, added more members since the end of the Cold War than we added during the Cold War. So, so you know, the the rationale for U.S. military uh, posture, again, especially our overseas posture, evolved after the end of the Cold War, and the new rationale was primacy. That's what Samuel Huntington called it uh, famously in an article in International Security Journal and uh, others uh, sort of picked up on that. And that is the argument that US military power is the essential sort of linchpin of international order. It's not American economic power, it's not our cultural influence, it's not our soft power, it's military power. We use our military power to cow our potential adversaries, but also uh, to reassure our allies and, and convince them that they don't need to have military power of their own, that, we, that, that our allies simply cannot be trusted uh, to defend their own interests and to to maintain adequate militaries for themselves because they simply can't be trusted to use them correctly. Uh, I think that's flawed on many levels. I think it, it, it sort of misapprehends the uh, power of U.S. military. The U.S. military is a, is a remarkable instrument and it's an incredibly powerful instrument, but it's a blunt instrument. In uh, the United States, as we've seen tragically over the course of the last 20 years, uh, we can start wars, but that doesn't mean that we can uh, can end them quickly or that the the benefits are felt uh, in the way that we would like to, you know, think. Um, equally important is I think we have to recognize that other countries do have interests and that maybe they understand their interests better than we think they do. Uh, and I think it, it's particularly hard today uh, for the United States. Uh, to lecture other countries around the world, other democracies, for example, on how to best conduct their affairs when the United States, after all, uh, has our own political problems right here at home. So uh, I, I think that, that there's a certain measure of humility that is always warranted uh, when you're uh, talking about reordering other societies by, uh, by violence. But I think there's an additional increment of humility that we Americans should, uh, uh, should, should take account of, uh, given our current situation.
0: Right. Okay, so that's kind of the theory that drives the bipartisan consensus on U.S. Uh, military intervention for the past 80 years or what right. 70 years or so. Yeah, 70, 70 years, roughly, yeah. Uh, you you are suggesting new principles, which are actually old principles. <laughs> I would say <laughs> common, common sense principles. Yeah. Uh, can you briefly run through all five of them? Sure,
1: Uh, so the first is uh, that there should be a compelling national security interest. If the United States is going to risk American lives, and, and also the lives of innocents in a foreign country. If we're going to, to launch a war, uh, then there needs to be a compelling U.S. national security at, interest at stake. Uh, if there isn't, there are other instruments, nonviolent instruments that we can use to try to advance our interest. But if there's not a compelling national security interest, then I don't think it's it's appropriate to to risk American lives. Uh, the second is related, we, we should have public support for the mission. We've already talked about this a little bit. The founders believe that uh, vesting the war powers in the Congress and, and therefore the branch of government that was closest to the people uh, was appropriate. Uh, I think that's certainly the case. We want the American people to be invested in these conflicts. Uh, we, we want them uh, to, to understand what the mission is and be supportive of it and then the mission can survive even the occasional setbacks of which there will always be setbacks. Um, we need to understand how we're going to pay for it. Uh, it's it's one thing to talk about wars on the cheap and ten billion dollars are paid for by oil revenues and things like that. I think it will be harder uh, for Americans to make the case for war uh, using the the same framework that uh, that the then the Project for a New American Century used at the start of the Iraq War. Uh, but uh, but I do think we need to spell out sort of how you know what we think this is going to cost and how we're going to pay for it. Um, uh, we need to know what the mission is going to be. That's another principle. It seems fairly obvious to me that we would uh, uh – ask what it is that we're expecting our military to do before we send them in harm's way. But we don't always do that. Sometimes it seems like uh, we treat military power as sort of like magical pixie dust or sort of, you know, it's it's sort of a magic wand. Uh, We'll just apply it and it'll sort of figure it, figure it out to the great credit, of course, of the people who serve in our military. They are adaptable people. They are can they have a can do spirit. They a lot of times do figure things out, but I think it's really inappropriate to sort of send them into a conflict without a clear sense of what it is we're asking them to do. Uh, And how they're going to do it. Um, And lastly, and I think this relates sort of back to the beginning, precisely because the United States is so powerful militarily, uh, we have an additional obligation to uh, to be uh, reticent to use force. So force should be a last resort. Uh, You know, no disrespect to the Danes or the Germans even or, you know, a big country like Germany has a small military or, you know, other countries in the world that have small militaries that are rarely used uh, for the United States, which has a large military that is often used. I think, it's a, I think it's particularly incumbent upon us uh, to demonstrate uh, and to think carefully uh, about when that military is used. Otherwise, we are likely to overuse it, which I think is precisely what's happened
0: over the last 20 years. Definitely so. So your new book, Peaceful <laughs> Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy by Dr. Chris Preble, where can folks right. both find your book and you also, you also do a lot of writing independent of your new book. Where can they right. find it as well?
1: Well, all my work is available on the Cato website, cato.org. I recommend not just my own work, but that of all my colleagues here in the Defense and Foreign Policy Department. Uh, The book is published by libertarianism.org, which is is affiliated with Cato. If you go to the libertarianism.org website, you'll see a page for many different ways to access the book. You can download a book uh, via PDF. You can listen to it on Audible. Uh, You can, um, there's a video, there's some podcasts, you can purchase it from Amazon. It really is available in lots of different ways. Uh, So however you consume uh, content these days, uh, there are are multiple different ways to do it.
0: And I definitely encourage people to do so. Uh, It's
1: a fantastic (laughs) book. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on your show.